For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Okay, we're going to be looking at about six chapters in Genesis, chapters 27 through 32. And these chapters represent Jacob's life, which turns out to be really a life of struggle with God, which leads to eventual dependence. But before we actually jump into the text, I think it's probably good for us to kind of frame this with understanding the religious mentality, because that's essentially what Jacob fell into and what many people fall into, just like you and me. I think with a religious mentality, first of all, there's an attempt to try to get God to deliver blessing. And we do this either by doing good things, things that we expect will bring about blessing in our lives. And a lot of times when God doesn't deliver in our time frame or in the way that we expect, there's a tendency to get really angry at God. Secondly, the religious mentality views God as either really stingy or disengaged. So God is always holding back. Or He's so aloof that we have to really try hard to get Him to deliver blessing in our lives. And yet, what we see as we study the Bible, God actually is very involved and He's a God who gives us incredibly great gifts. Finally, we often tell ourselves, I'll probably have to repay God for any assistance that He gives us. So, if He does happen to bless us, there is always this you know, sense that we have to repay Him or we need to do things to, to continue to appease Him. And all of these things were really a representative of Jacob's mentality toward God, as we'll see. So why don't we begin? We're going to be doing a lot of reading, and you know, a lot of us here probably have never read this full text. And so what we want to do is we want to try to read the text, understand the story, and then we'll spend a little bit of time analyzing the story. Let's start in Genesis 27, verse 41. Remember, we studied Esau and Jacob's life. There was that conflict between Jacob and Esau because Jacob stole Esau's birthright. From that time on, Esau hated Jacob because their father had given Jacob the blessing. And Esau began to scheme, I'll soon be mourning my father's death. Then I'll kill my brother Jacob. But Rebekah, their mother, heard about Esau's plans. So she sent for Jacob and told him, listen, Esau is consoling himself by plotting to kill you. So listen carefully, my son. Get ready and flee to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay there with him until your brother cools off. When he calms down and forgets what you've done to him, I'll send for you to come back. Why should I lose both of you in one day? Okay, Genesis 28. So then Jacob left Beersheba and traveled toward Haran. At sundown, he arrived at a good place to set up camp and stop there for the night. Jacob found a stone to rest his head against and lay down to sleep. So he finds a little stone pillow. Looks like he's not getting much sleep that night. And as he slept, he dreamt of a stairway that reached from the earth up to heaven, and he saw the angels of God going up and down the stairway. The stairway to heaven. 
Long before Led Zeppelin, right? (laughs) At the top of the stairway stood the Lord, and He said, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather Abraham, the God of your father Isaac. The ground that you're lying on belongs to you, and I'm giving it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They'll spread out in all directions, to the east, the west, the north, and the south. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. Now, if you recall from our previous studies in Genesis, God was reiterating this covenant or promise that he had given Abraham, Jacob's grandfather. And since Jacob received this birthright from Isaac, his father, these spiritual blessings pass on to him. What's more, God says, I'm with you, and I'll protect you wherever you go. One day I'll bring you back to this land, and I won't leave you until I've finished giving you everything that I promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I wasn't even aware of it. But he was so afraid and said, What an awesome place this is. It's none other than the house of God, the very gateway to heaven. The next morning, Jacob got up very early. He took the stone he had been resting his head against, and he set it upright as a memorial pillar. Then he poured olive oil over it, and he named the place Bethel, which means the house of God. So Jacob gets this incredible dream or vision from God, and he says, you know, this is so awesome. What we need to do is we need to mark this place because it's sacred. It's holy. And, um, you know, really, this is very common in religious thinking, this notion of sacred space where an individual, a human, has an encounter with the deity or with the gods and marks that area as a sacred space or area. And, you know, in religious thinking, it's very convenient to set up an area that is holy because... It puts us really as the religious practitioner in a position of control and power over the deity where we can essentially determine when it's convenient for us to enter God's presence or when it's convenient for us to worship God. But the rest of the time, we're not within the sanctuary or in the sacred space. We can live however we want. And so... There's great appeal in having sacred space, marking out an area, a grove, or a hill where we can enter God's presence, but then immediately leave that and go on with our lives. Well, Jacob made this vow. If God indeed will be with me and protect me on this journey, and if he will provide me with food and clothing, and if I return safely to my father's home, then the Lord will certainly be my God. And this memorial pillar I've set up will become a place for worship of God. And I will present to God a tenth of everything that He gives me. You notice all the conditions? If God indeed will protect me, if He will provide for me, if I return safely, then the Lord will certainly be my God. And again, this is very typical for the religious mindset where we set out these conditions. If God delivers these promises, if God gives me these blessings, 
within my time frame, in the way that I envision, then I will be loyal to God. You know, really, this is a way of making following God contingent upon Him fulfilling our demands. It's, it's essentially making a contract with God, saying, if you do these things, I'll agree to follow you. And yet, God expects just the opposite. He wants to see that we're willing to follow Him, that we want to be loyal to Him. And in the context of a personal relationship, He then says that He will bless us. If you look carefully at these contingencies or these conditions that Jacob puts forward, they're all things that God promised in the Abrahamic covenant to give him anyway. And yet, Jacob prefers to set this as, you know, this conditional agreement between him and God. Imagine if God made his blessing contingent upon our faithfulness. What if God reversed this and said, if you are faithful to me, if you're willing to follow me, then I will bless you. Probably wouldn't see very much blessing in our lives, right? And yet, these are the expectations that we place on God. And often, they lead to disappointment. You know, just recently, I was, um, you know, working with a guy who... uh, was pretty upset because he's a pretty good person. He has been relatively faithful and committed to God. And yet God hadn't delivered, you know, a wife to him yet. His influence among people uh, spiritually hadn't grown to his expectation. And he was just like, you know, I didn't sign up for this. I'm willing to follow you if you deliver on my demands. I'm, 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 I'm into this if you bless me the way that, you, that I expect. And so as a result, he decided, you know, I'm out of here. And so that's really one of the dangers of laying out all of these conditions when following God, is that we often face disappointment. Genesis ch- chapter 29, verse 1, Then Jacob hurried on, finally arriving in the land of the east. He saw well in the distance... And Jacob went over to the shepherds and asked, Where are you from, my friends? We're from Haran, they answered. Do you know a man there named Laban, the grandson of Nahor? He asked. We do, they replied. Is he doing well? Yes, he's doing well, they answered. And so Jacob was still talking with them when Rachel arrived with her father's flocks, for she was a shepherd. And it turns out she was hot, too. Well, Jacob then, we're told, kissed Rachel and wept aloud. (laughs) Two things you shouldn't do on a first date. (laughs) Reach in for the kiss and burst into tears, right? So Rachel quickly ran and told her father Laban. And after Jacob had stayed with Laban for about a month, Laban said to him, you shouldn't work for me without without pay, just because we're relatives. Tell me how much your wages should be. He felt bad. He said, you know, you're my relative, but you're doing all this stuff for me. I want to be able to pay you. Now, Laban had two daughters. The older daughter was named Leah, and the younger was named Rachel. 
There was no sparkle in Leah's eyes. But Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. It's kind of sad. Now this phrase here, there was no sparkle in Leah's eyes, it's probably a euphemism, one that's kind of lost to us today because it literally means that she had weak eyes. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it probably means that she was lacking in the attractiveness department, right? Well, since Jacob was in love with Rachel, he told her father, I'll work for you seven years if you give me Rachel, your younger daughter is my wife. Agreed, Laban replied. I'd rather give her to you than anyone else. Stay here and work with me. So they forged an agreement. So Jacob worked seven years to pay for Rachel, but his love for her was so strong that it seemed to him just but a few days. (laughs) Jacob was so intoxicated with love. It was like the seven years of working hard to get Rachel was just like drop in the bucket, right? Finally, the time came for him to marry her, and he said, I fulfilled my agreement. Now give me my wife so I can sleep with her. (laughs) Imagine saying that to, uh, you know, your wife's dad, right? (laughs) So Laban invited everyone in the neighborhood and prepared a wedding feast. But that night when it was dark, Laban took Leah to Jacob. And he actually slept with her. (laughs) Laban had given Leah a servant, Zilpah, to be her maid. But when Jacob woke up the next morning, it was Leah. What have you done to me? Jacob raged at Laban. I've worked seven years for Rachel. Why have you tricked me? Okay. It's a little hard to imagine this happening, right? A few things to take note of. First of all, in the ancient world, they didn't have electricity, so it was very dark, right? (laughs) So, um, you know, maybe Jacob didn't see Leah very well. Plus, you know, uh, women were, uh, it was a very modest culture, and so they would cover up most of their body. And so it might be that, you know, Jacob just couldn't recognize her with what she was wearing. Also, you know, Jacob was probably having a good time at his wedding, probably had a few drinks. Maybe he didn't realize it was Leah. And finally, you know, Leah was in on the plot, right? She was a willing participant in scheming on Jacob. Well, anyway, Laban said, it's not our custom here to marry off a younger daughter ahead of the firstborn. It doesn't work that way, right? (laughs) Well, but... He says, but wait until the bridal week is over, then we'll give you Rachel too, provided you promise to work another seven years for me. So Jacob agreed to work seven more years. A week after Jacob had married Leah, Laban gave him to Rachel too. So Jacob slept with Rachel too and loved her very much more than Leah. He then stayed and worked for Laban this additional seven years. And so from this point, you know, they have uh, many children, uh, 11 children, and later on they have another. And these represent the 12 tribes of Israel, Jacob's descendants. All right, Genesis chapter 30. We're moving here. Soon after Rachel had given birth to Joseph, the 11th child, 
Jacob said to Laban, please release me so I can go home to my country. Let me take my wives and my children for I've earned them by serving you and let me be on my way. You certainly know how hard I've worked for you. Laban replied, you had little indeed before I came, but your wealth has increased enormously. The Lord has blessed you through everything that I've done, but now what about me? Uh, what can I, when can I start providing for my own family? What wages do you want? Jacob replied, don't give me anything. Just do this one thing and I'll continue to tend and watch over your flocks. Let me inspect your flocks today. Remove all the sheep and goats that are speckled or spotted along with the black sheep. Give these to me as my wages. All right, Laban replied. It'll be as you say. But that very day, Laban went out, removed all the male goats that were streaked, spotted, and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted and had white patches and all the black sheep. He placed them in the care of his sons, who then took them three days' journey away from where Jacob was. And meanwhile, Jacob stayed and cared for the rest of Laban's flock. He's like, yeah, sounds like a good idea. And as soon as Jacob turns away, he basically divides his flock, all of the ones that are blemished, and sends them far away. He's like, oh, okay, here's the flock. All of them happen to be white. Then Jacob took some fresh branches from the poplar, almond, and plane trees and peeled off strips of bark, making white streaks on them. Then he placed these peeled branches in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink, for that was where they made it. All right, this part gets a little bit puzzling. What is Jacob doing here? Well, as it turns out, he was involved in superstitious religious practice. You know, when you look at animistic religions, often they do various ceremonies or rituals or they say different incantations in order to try to influence the spirits or the gods to deliver a blessing or to protect them from some sort of curse. So here, Jacob was involved in in this superstitious practice by peeling these branches so that they had streaks on them, hoping that, you know, when the sheep and goats came to uh, mate, he would, uh, you know, say, oh, look at this peeled poplar branch here with stripes on it in the water trough, with the thought that it would produce streaked sheep and goats. Pretty superstitious, pretty foolish. Again, you know, I think that this sort of fits with the religious mentality where there is a desire to try to put human effort into getting God to bless us in our lives. Of course, we know that striped sheep and goats don't come from looking at these poplar branches that have stripes on them while they mate. Um, But as it turns out, God delivered anyway and and blessed Jacob's efforts. When they made it in front of the white streaked branches, they gave birth to the young that were streaked, speckled, and spotted. And so Jacob separated those lambs from Laban's flock. And at mating time, he turned to the, the, the flock to face Laban's animals that were streaked or black. This is how he built his own flock instead of increasing Laban's. And so the first time that these animals produced streaked, speckled, and spotted offspring, 
that must have been sort of miraculous, but then it turns out Jacob was able to uh, get some selective breeding going because then he turns those animals to Laban's flock, which produced more of its kind. As a result, Jacob became very wealthy with large flocks of sheep and goats, female and male servants, and many camels and donkeys. Genesis 31. But Jacob soon learned that Laban's sons were grumbling about him. Jacob has robbed our father of everything, they said. He's gained all his wealth at our father's expense. And Jacob began to notice a change in Laban's attitude toward him. The Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your father and grandfather and your relatives there, and I will be with you. So Jacob called Rachel and Leah out of the field where he was watching his flock. He said to them, I've noticed that your father's attitude toward me has changed, but the God of my father has been with me. You know how hard I've worked for your father, but he's cheated me, changing my wages ten different times. It's interesting that Jacob was a manipulator. In fact, his name, Jacob, literally means a deceiver. And yet, it seems like he's met his match here. Laban, who always seems to get the upper hand on him. For if he said the speckled animals be your wages, the whole flock began to produce speckled young. And when he changed his mind and said the striped animals will be your wages, then the whole flock produced striped young. In this way, God has taken your father's animals and given them to me. One time during the mating season, I had a dream and saw the male goats mating with the females that were streaked, speckled, and spotted. That must have been a really weird dream. <laughs> In my dream, the angel of God said to me, Jacob, and I replied, yes, I'm here. The angel said, look up and see, and you will see that the only that only the streaked, speckled, and spotted males are mating with the females of your flock, for I've seen how Laban has treated you. So God explains to Jacob the reason why these animals were producing offspring that were speckled, streaked, and spotted. It wasn't because he was putting poplar branches or almond branches that had stripes on them in the feeding trough. It was actually because God was blessing him. Not because of his, you know, religious fervor. It wasn't because of his superstitious practices that these were happening. It was because of the power of God. It wasn't a result of human effort. Well, God continues, I am the God who appeared to you at Bethel, the place where you anointed the pillar of stone and made your vow to me. Now get, get ready, leave this country and return to the land of your birth. So Jacob put his wives and children on camels, and he drove all his livestock in front of him. And so he set out for the land of Canaan, where his father Isaac lived. At that time, they left. Laban was some distance away shearing his sheep. And Rachel stole her father's household idols and took them with her. So these were probably cast from gold or silver. So these were very valuable And so we're told, Jacob outwitted Laban the Aramean, for they set out secretly and never told Laban that they were leaving. Three days later, Laban was told that Jacob had had fled. So he gathered a group of his relatives and set out in hot pursuit. He caught up with Jacob seven days later in the hill country of Gilead. But the previous night, God had actually appeared to Laban the Aramean in a dream and told him, I'm warning you, leave Jacob alone. Laban caught up with Jacob as he camped out in the hill country, and he set up his camp not far away from Jacob's. 
What do you mean by deceiving me like this? Jacob Laban demanded. How dare you drag my daughters away like prisoners of war? I could destroy you, but the God of your father appeared to me last night and warned me, leave Jacob alone. And so, you know, part of the narrative that we're not going to cover, Laban searches for this missing idol, but, you know, it turns up nothing, even though Rachel was hiding it. And um, turns out Jacob actually didn't know that Rachel had done this. Well, Jacob became very angry after this, and he challenged Laban. He says, what's my crime? What have I done to wrong you to make you chase after me as though I'm a criminal? For 20 years, I slaved in your house, and I worked for 14 years, earning your two daughters, and then six more years for your flock. And you changed my wages 10 different times. In fact, if the God of my father hadn't been on my side, you would have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen your abuse and my hard work. That is why he appeared to you last night and rebuked you. And so Jacob and Laban, they make peace. You know, Laban kisses his, his daughters, his grandchildren, and then they part ways. So as Jacob is heading toward the land of Canaan, the area where his father lived, guess who happens to be there? His brother Esau. Genesis chapter 32. As Jacob started on his way, angels of God came to meet him. And when Jacob saw them, he exclaimed, this is God's camp. Then Jacob sent messengers ahead to his brother Esau, who was living in the land of Edom. You know, it had been years since they probably had seen each other. Over 20 years. And you can imagine the nervousness, the anticipation that Jacob must have been feeling as he was going to meet his brother for the very first time. Uh, his brother whom he had cheated out of his birthright. He told them, give this message to my master Esau. Humble greetings from, greetings from your servant Jacob. Until now, I've been living with Uncle Laban. Hey there, bud. It's been a long time. I've been with uh, Uncle Laban. Well, and now I own cattle, donkeys, flocks of sheep and goats, and many servants, both men, men and women. I've sent these messengers to inform my Lord of my coming, hoping that you will be friendly to me. So he sends a delegation ahead. He, doesn't, he wants to kind of wade in there and sort of feel out whether or not Esau is angry. After delivering the message, the messengers returned to Jacob and reported, we met your brother Esau and he's already on his way to meet you with an army of 400 men. You can just imagine, you know, the blood draining out of Jacob's face as uh, he hears this report. You know, Jacob, he's defenseless. He's got his two wives. He's got his children, maybe some servants, a large flock of goats and sheep. But he doesn't have like a standing army to fight off Esau and his 400 men. So Jacob is vulnerable here. He's in a, he's in a bad situation. And under stress, we see that he actually reverts to his old ways. Jacob was terrified at the news, and he divided his household along with the flocks and herds and camels into two groups. He thought if Esau meets one group and attacks, perhaps the other group can escape. So he's like, I'm going to divide my possessions. And um, that way, you know, if Esau is angry, uh, we can escape. 
And then Jacob prayed. The first time in the entire narrative that we are told that Jacob prays, turns to God. And he says, Oh my God, grandfather, my grandfather of Abraham, or oh my God, the grandfather of Abraham, my God of the God of my father Isaac, you told me to return to your own land, your relatives, and you promised me I'll treat you kindly. I'm not worthy of all the unfailing love and faithfulness that you've shown to me, your servant. Notice the humility that he's expressing here. And also the recounting of the promise God had given. When I left home and crossed the Jordan, I owned nothing except a walking stick. Now my household fills two large camps. O Lord, please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau. I'm afraid that he's coming to attack me along with my wives and children. But you promised me I'll surely treat you kindly and I'll multiply your descendants until they become as numerous as the sands along the seashore, too many to count. You know, so Jacob decides that, you know, at this point he's going to send his flocks and herds into three separate groups as sort of an insurance policy uh, to make sure that he could persuade his brother Esau that he should, you know, he shouldn't attack him. Hoping, hoping that each wave would sort of soften him. Jacob thought, I'll try to appease him by sending these gifts ahead of me. And when I see him in person, perhaps he'll be friendly to me. Well, <clears throat> the other thing is, he knew that if uh, Esau attacked him in the first wave, he could just cut his losses and run. So, Jacob here was scheming again. He had a contingency plan just in case God didn't deliver on his promise. And this is so characteristic of our mentality. If God doesn't deliver, I've got my plan B or C, just in case. So the gifts were sent ahead while Jacob himself spent the night there in the camp. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his servants, servant wives and 11 sons, and crossed the Jabbok River with them. After taking them to the other side, he sent over all his possessions. This left Jacob all alone in the camp. So he's sitting there, afraid for his life. His wife and kids are across the river. He's got all of his possessions heading in the direction of Esau, and he's standing there alone. And we're told a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. The text actually identifies this individual as the angel of the Lord. God Himself actually came in human form and had this wrestling match with Jacob. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. Then the man said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man said, your name will no longer be Jacob. From now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won. Jacob said, please tell me your name. Why do you, uh, and the man said, why do you want to know my name? Then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place Peniel, which means face of God. For he said, I've seen, God's face, seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. The sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel, and he was limping because of the injury to his hip. And the author adds this little parenthetical statement. Even today, the people of Israel don't eat the tendon near the hip socket because of what happened that night 
when the man strained the tendon of Jacob's hip. That's actually true. If you, uh, you know, go to a devout Jewish household, uh, they don't eat the tendon of an animal in the hip area because of this story right here in Genesis 32. Finally, Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and his servants. He put the servant wives and their children in the front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. When Jacob went ahead, as he approached his brother, he bowed down seven times before him. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they both wept. Not what he expected. You know, Jacob's plan to appease Esau was completely pointless. God was working behind the scenes all along to restore Esau's heart. And so Jacob went through all of that trouble to try to manipulate his brother, to listen to him, to soften him. And yet God was taking care of him the entire time. Then Esau looked at the women and children and asked, who are these people with you? These are children God has given me, your servant, Jacob replied. Then the servant wives came forward with their children and bowed before them. Next came Leah with her children. Finally, Joseph and Rachel came forward and bowed before him. And what are all these flocks and herds that I met as I came, Esau asked. He's like, why were there three waves of like all of these possessions? They're a gift to you to ensure our friendship. My brother, I have plenty, Esau answered. Keep what you have yourself. But, God, but Jacob insisted, no, if you found favor with me, please accept this gift. And what a relief to see your friendly smile. It's like seeing the face of God. Please take this gift I bought you, for God has given, been very gracious to me, and I have more than enough. And because Jacob insisted, Esau finally accepted the gift. And there you have the narrative. Now, from this point on, Jacob regularly turns to God. Seems like something really shifted in his spiritual mindset. Secondly, he never again resorts to manipulation. Unlike his former times when he was uh, a younger man, stealing his, Esau's birthright and trying to manipulate Laban. And after years of trying to use human effort to ensure God's blessing, he finally trusted God to deliver on his promises. So, at this point, it might be good for us to do a little bit of analysis. I mean, we, we looked at a lot of stuff here. How can we boil these down to principles that we can look to and actually apply to our lives? I think, first of all, Jacob used manipulation to obtain things that God was planning to give him anyway. And, um, you know... Often, we do the same thing. We feel like we need to manipulate the situation or we need to use our own ingenuity to try to make these things happen, to try to get the blessings we feel like we deserve instead of turning to God. And yet, God often already plans to provide for our needs, but He wants to do that within the context of a personal relationship, not a work relationship. Not a contract that we forge with him where we say, if I do these things, then it obligates you to do this. Just the opposite. We tell him, I want to follow you unconditionally 
trusting that you're going to provide for me, that you're going to take care of my needs. Secondly, Jacob met his match in Laban. Every time he tried to outfox Laban, Laban outfoxes him every single time. And, you know, God will oftentimes do this to expose our character flaws, to show us our problems. I often chuckle whenever I talk to, like, a, you know, a younger brother in Christ who says, you know, man, I just can't stand this guy that God has put in my life. It's just, it's just so hard to even be around him. And what I really want to tell him is, you know, the reason why he drives you nuts, he's exactly like you. You can see all of his faults because you see yourself in the mirror. And so God will put people in our lives or put us into different circumstances in order to draw out these character issues in our lives. And that's exactly what he was doing here with Jacob. Third, Jacob began to realize God was the one, ble- one actually blessing him after 20 years of frustration and hardship. It was a long process. But over time, God was actually starting to get through to him. It was starting to sink in. And that's the way that God works with us. He works very patiently. Knowing that we can be very hard-headed. That we resist His input in our lives. That we want to actually take control of our lives and sort of leave Him out of it. But He commits Himself to working in us. Fourth, with the threat of Esau looming, Jacob actually reverts back to his old ways. And uh, this happens. It's not like once you gain significant victory in a certain area of your life, some character flaw you have, then it just disappears from your life. Often we find ourselves struggling with that same thing maybe year after year or decade after decade. Spiritual growth doesn't work like that where God works in us and it just vanishes. Most of the time, it's like, you know, to use the analogy of a, of a spiral staircase, you know, it's like every time you go around the spiral staircase, you know, you encounter the same thing, but over time, you're moving in the right direction. And that's exactly the way it is with us where, you know, we encounter the same character flaw year after year, but each time we do, God changes us ever so slightly. Fifth, Jacob's life didn't exactly represent a shining example of spirituality. In fact, most of his life represented defeat and failure. So it raises the question, why would God include this huge narrative in the book of Genesis? I think it really centers on this one event, this wrestling with God. To understand this better, I think we need to, we need to uh, see that this great encounter with God actually came when Jacob felt exposed to a situation wholly beyond him. You know, this crisis brought him to a place where he finally was able to pray. This crisis brought about in Jacob this spiritual hunger that he never had. And God will actually allow crisis to enter into your life in order to draw you closer to Him. Because He knows that in times when everything's going well, we're more inclined to forget that He's even there. 
We can easily ignore Him. But in, the, in, the, in times of crisis and trial, it puts us in a place where we need to decide, am I going to turn to God? You know, a lot of us, especially those of us who, you know, don't believe necessarily in the biblical God, maybe have never turned to God, you know, maybe we feel ashamed. You know, I'm in, I'm in the midst of a crisis right now. And yet I've ignored God all of my life. It doesn't seem right that I would turn to Him for help when I'm in trouble. And yet that's exactly what God may be doing. God will use crisis to show you your need for Him. Second, this conflict brought to a head a lifetime of battling and contending. You know, when you look at this story of, God, or of Jacob wrestling with God, it's really a vivid illustration of his relationship with God. One of love and enmity. One of defiance and finally dependence. One of the things that becomes very clear in this narrative, it wasn't that Jacob was contending with his circumstances or with certain people like Esau and Laban. But his struggle was actually with God. That he wanted control of his life. That he wanted to trust in himself instead of God. And you know, you might be here tonight and that's exactly what you're wrestling with, so to speak. Where you're having trouble letting go and trusting God. Third, Jacob's defiance suddenly turned into reliance. It's interesting, you know, this wrestling match was about trying to gain control, but then all of a sudden, in a moment, it turns out Jacob is grasping on to the angel of the Lord because he understands that he needs the angel of the Lord, that he needs God. And by clinging to God, Jacob showed a quality that really outweighed all of his faults and really makes him a figure of spirituality and a spiritual giant in the Old Testament. That no matter how hard things got, no matter how painful it was to wrestle with God, he clung on. He hung in there. He didn't give up. And God can work with us when we're doing that where we're willing to hold on to Him even when things feel like they're falling apart in our lives. Fifth, when the angel of the Lord asked for Jacob's name, he was trying to get Jacob to admit who he was. It's odd that the angel of the Lord said, what's your name? He knew his name was Jacob, right? But in the ancient world, names contain way more significance than they do today. They often depicted or showed a characteristic of the person who had that name. And so, Jacob saying, my, my name is Jacob, which means deceiver. The Lord was getting him to admit his problem. And then, God actually renames him Israel, which literally means, may God strive for him. It's got a verbal root to it. And um, in the ancient world, whenever you would rename somebody, that meant that you were placing yourself in authority over that person and that that person, by accepting that name, was putting his, himself in submission to you. And so this represented Jacob surrendering his life to God. Seventh, Jacob's wrestling with God gives us a picture of surrender. Uh, I love how 
the famous Christian author and, and uh, speaker, Stuart Briscoe, puts this. He says, as he lay on his back with the weight of his assailant heavy upon him, utterly powerless to move, the moment of truth concerning the true nature of Jacob's finiteness dawned. There had always been a reliance on his wits, his ingenuity, his cool, determined commitment to come out on top, but now he had met his match. One would have thought that Jacob's dealings with Laban would have taught him that even he had his own limits, but while the truth may have begun to dawn, it didn't come to full realization until he sank exhausted and defeated under the mighty hand of God. Jacob was busy learning what everybody who is earnest about spiritual life must learn either the hard way or the easy way. That truly the easy life, the fulfilled life, is a life of surrendering to God and trusting Him. And finally, Jacob's hip was a lasting mark of his inadequacy. You know, it was a reminder that he needed God, that he needed to depend on God. You know, as the old saying goes, you don't have to remind a man with a bad hip to walk softly. And so Jacob, from this point on, was a different person. He was changed. He knew that he was weak and that he needed God. So let's apply this. First of all, are you prepared to admit your need for God? You know, maybe you're here tonight and you've been living in a way that suggests, I can take care of myself. I don't need God in my life. I'm going to do things my own way. And yet we would have to admit that we're somewhat disappointed with the results. We're unhappy. It didn't turn out the way that we expected. God says, if you admit your need and you turn to me, I can enter into your life and I can take care of you in ways that you cannot on your own. God tells us that He loves us, that He wants to provide for us, and that He plans to do that in the context of a personal relationship with Him. So if you're here tonight, I'd urge you to turn to God and to invite Him into your life. Second, are you ready to receive a new name from God? Some of us have made the decision to receive Christ, to enter a relationship with God, and yet we find ourselves wrestling with God, unwilling to surrender. Are you willing to just turn to God and say, I want to trust you. I want to stop contending with you. I want, I want your plan and will for my life. And finally, are you walking with a limp yet? And some of us are hard-headed people, myself included. And I'm convinced that, you know, in this situation, Jacob probably could have shortened this. It didn't have to take 20 years for him to figure this out. And it's the same with you. It doesn't have to take 20 years of God, you know, hammering you, wrestling you down to the ground, pinning you, before you realize that you need to rely on Him, to trust in Him for your life. And so I would urge you tonight to just turn to Him and to submit yourself to Him and to allow Him to break you so that you can be of greater use to Him. Yeah, Lord, we read in the book of Acts that um, the early church was uh, devoted to the public reading of Scripture. And uh, I just 
I love uh, studying through Genesis and reading these large sections and um, seeing people, maybe for the first time, hearing these stories and just being uh, blown away. It's awesome. And uh, thank you that we're in a church that really values studying your word, and I pray that we would never change in that way. And um, thank you, too, for the story of Jacob, Lord. Thank you that we can learn vicariously through him, that we don't have to make the same mistakes that he did. And um, like all these brothers and sisters were saying, you know, I pray that we would come to a place where we would be willing to let go of our self-confidence and place our confidence in you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.